This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Welcome to this second in the series of current issues in assessment. Um, we're very pleased that Mary Richardson has come today um, to talk to us about um, assessing citizenship. Um, my name is Jill Grimshaw. I'm the programme manager in the Cambridge Assessment Network, which organises a programme of seminars and so on. Um, so I just wanted to welcome you all and, and especially to welcome visitors who've, who've come here today. I think um, sort of the, the majority of the audience people who work in Cambridge Assessment, um, but I know we have some visitors from AQA, which is actually where Mary was working, weren't she, before, uh, before she went to uh, Roehampton, and uh, other visitors as well. So welcome, everybody. Um, Mary's going to talk for about 45 minutes or so, and then we'll have um, time for questions. So, thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. Um, right, well, thank you very much again for inviting me today. It's really nice to come and uh, talk about my work. Um, I work in the Centre for Research for Beliefs, Rights and Values in Education at Froebel College at Roehampton. Um, obviously, as Jill said before that, I was working for AQA in the Research and Stats Department, so um, several uh, former colleagues are here. And um, it was actually at AQA that the idea for my doctoral research came to me. Um, at AQA, all research officers used to take part in the awarding season. Um, our favourite time of the year was July, with those 16-hour days spent in hot rooms with examiners. And <laughs> the ideas and the early sort of germination for this research came from being in an awarding meeting for GCSE citizenship very early on and looking at the work that students were presenting as evidence for the awards. And I can remember at the time just looking at the work and talking with the examiners afterwards about it and saying, I'm not quite sure what we're testing here. I'm not sure what's being tested in relation to this idea of what we mean by citizenship. And it, it confounded me, the idea of testing citizenship and what it was we were actually testing. So I joked, actually, at the time with one of our examiners who was a professor. I said it was a PhD in this. And actually, a year later, there was, because um, I started doing it. And um, as I went along then, from, from there, I did start to find lots and lots of things about the assessment of citizenship that were quite confounding, quite controversial and um, deeply problematic. So they made for a terrific three years of uh, doctoral study. Um, <clears throat> you might wonder why I also have these kind of a range of interests. I'm not just interested in assessment. I am really interested in assessment, obviously, because otherwise I wouldn't continue to do my research in it. I also have a background. Before I went to AQA, I used to work in human rights in NGO, non-governmental organisations, doing campaigning work for children and um, general human rights campaigning work. And this is why I've got this kind of interest in this notion of what we mean by citizenship. And I was so excited in the late 90s when I heard that there was this subject going to be created for schools that I wondered what this was going to be. What kind of form was it going to take? How would it teach children about being a citizen? So that sort of gives you the, the context to where I was and coming at my work from different angles. Now, working in a centre for beliefs, rights and values, you can also probably tell at Froebel College we have one of the largest uh, collections of philosophers of education 
Um, I am not a philosopher, I have to say. I kind of dip my toe in it and the philosophers keep going, jump off our side of the fence, go on, Mary. Um, but I can't quite go there just yet. <laughs> but there are elements of philosophy that I think assessment providers and those of us working in assessment actually should be using. We should be using philosophy to help us understand children more and help us understand teachers more. When I started to delve into um, how I was going to do this research at, at doctoral level, I realised, obviously, I've got to look at the whole theme of citizenship in English schools. What does it mean to be a citizen in England? How does, how does that actually translate for children in the classroom? And kind of juxtaposed to that is this idea of the kind of culture of assessment that we have in England too. Working in an exam board gave me one very particular perspective of assessment, of how we test, how we actually provide qualifications. So I realised what I was going to have to do was the, the way I had to actually approach the research was by making sure that all the time I was keeping focused on this kind of triad of what it is to be a citizen, citizenship, what the curriculum means, and also the interaction of those two with assessments. Um, the more I dug around in the literature, as you, you do at the start of a piece of doctoral work, um, digging for six to eight months, I didn't find a huge amount of research that looked specifically at assessing problematical subjects from the perspective of teachers and pupils. And that's actually what I wanted to do, because I wanted to find out what it was teachers and pupils were saying in order to be able to look at and actually answer some, of, answer some of my questions, which is how do they perceive this subject? And then, consequently, how do they perceive the assessments of it? What do those assessments mean to them? And do they consider them something that's measurable and important? Um, so... I went off, and I'll tell you a bit more about the study in, uh, in a bit, but off I went, and some of the first conversations I had with teachers resulted in comments like this. You can't test for good citizenship, it's not fair. There's no such thing as a grade A citizen. This teacher here was the um, deputy head of a comprehensive school in the south of England. He was responsible for the whole citizenship curriculum for his school. He had no training in the subject at all. He actually had no interest in the subject at all, if I'm honest about it, and he was very honest with me about it. I interviewed him, it would be three, three years ago now. Citizenship had been a part of his school curriculum for five years at that point. And I said, so what kind of assessment framework do you have? Can you show it to me? And he said, no, we don't assess it. He said, I just, I can't look at it. I have to just ignore the assessments. And he said, when Ofsted come in, I'll just deal with it when they come in. I'll see what happens. So he has no interest in assessing whatsoever. And what I think is really interesting is what he says about fairness. He considers it to be unfair. So he's looking at it from a very particular perspective. He's looking at it as a measure of a citizen. Okay, that you're going to be a grade A citizen and so on. Um, this other teacher is someone that I interviewed a bit later on into the study and they said that their coordinator who was actually managing the whole assessment of citizenship was against testing per se. If you fail, are you bad? Does it make you a bad person? Are you a bad citizen? 
happy. Now, I think I picked these out. Obviously, I've got tons of, of these conversations that I had with people. I've picked these out as exemplars because the work done by David Kerr at the National Foundation for Educational Research also um, includes lots of similar discussions to this. And the one thing that, that I, was, I was finding too was that people are commonly confusing the notion of assessing the subject of citizenship with assessing the self. And that is what makes it such a problematic issue and such a problematic subject. So when we come to the actual curriculum itself, when it was introduced um, from 2002, um, I don't know how much you know about the background to the curriculum. Do people have a reasonable knowledge of citizenship? There's kind of shaky heads, some noddy heads. <laughs> okay, um, back in the 1990s, the, um, the then originally Conservative government actually set about um, asking Sir Bernard Crick um, to go off and, and form a, a working group to actually investigate whether they thought citizenship should be introduced into schools. Now, off he went with his advisory group and lots and lots of people interviewed people, set up um, working groups, focus groups in schools. And they came to the conclusion, um, as many of these advisory groups do, that yes, it would be a really good thing for this to be a part of the national curriculum. And it would be really important to be a part of the national curriculum. And the most quoted part of the document that they wrote, which is now famously called the Crick Report, are one of the opening statements where Crick said, I want to see no less than a political change in the country. His notion of citizenship was something that was going to be political. We were going to see um, the kind of output from it as being voting political engagement. And actually, when we look back at the documentation pre the Crick report, that's actually what the government wanted. They're worried about the continual slump in voting in young people aged between 17 and 24. They wanted something in schools that was going to try and inculcate a new idea about political engagement. And whilst the framework of the citizenship curriculum has a lot more in it than that, obviously, it's... Um, <clears throat> Its origins come from this very politically-led ideal. So that's, that was how it was starting. Um, because citizenship itself has kind of hovered on the perimeters of our education system since about 1860. If you look back at educational history in Britain, you'll see it right back to Victorian times, where it's, it's hovered around as civics and, and uh, various other ideals. So what they decided upon was that the citizenship curriculum would be taught via personal social education at primary school and it wouldn't be statutory. So in my study I didn't look at primary schools at all just in case you're wondering why hasn't she looked at primary schools. I went to secondary level where it's actually, actually statutory key stages three and four for all students up to the age of 16 now. Now the content of it is in four major strands now, these aren't the official titles, OK? This is, this is how I used to remember it. it, was by calling it the four Ds. Originally, I called it the three Ds of democracy, OK? Learning about political engagement, government, duties, learning about rights, responsibilities. It's very much that dynamic of citizenship. And what I call doing, there's a strand of active citizenship. Um, students actually doing things in their communities, at home, in their schools, etc. And then 
After 2007, the publication of a report by Keith Ajabo, they introduced a diversity strand. So we've got these four Ds of this is the actual content of, of what's happening in citizenship. Um, in terms of how schools deliver it, and this is really, really crucial to assessment, and I'm going to come back to it later on, schools were given the choice. They could either de deliver it as a discrete lesson or they could deliver it in a cross-curricular manner. It was their choice. And the original framework for assessment, and to some extent it's still like this, the argument is that it's going to be a flexible and experimental model of assessment in line with the idea that um, citizenship itself is quite a flexible notion and a tricky ideal. So the fact that teachers were given this range of choices in terms of the way it was delivered and the way it was assessed makes it a very unusual part of the national curriculum. <clears throat> but there are very particular problems. Citizenship itself, if I got you to do this, and when I'm teaching my master's students about citizenship, one of the first tasks I do is the, the classic post-it note task where I get everyone to write down what do, we, what do you think citizenship is? What do you think citizenship the subject is, citizenship the notion is? If we did it again today, we would not get the same responses from everybody. And the problem is, as a concept, it's deeply contested. Therefore, in schools, teachers have very mixed ideas about what it means, about what it is. And that is commonly translated to the pupils too. And also I found to an extent through parents as well, parents' notions of citizenship, about why children should be studying it, is problematic. And in the literature, if you look at this from a historical, a philosophical, sociological context, I've looked at it from a range of, of different areas and written from a range of different areas on it, there is very little agreement on exactly what it is. And this is just the beginning of the problem. Because that fact that it's contested as a concept means that it's also very contested as a subject. Um, Professor Ian Davis at York has written widely on the notion of citizenship as a subject in schools. And his work found over 300 different definitions of what teachers think citizenship is. And we might say, yes, but there's a well-formed curriculum. It's out there. Of course, it's clear to everybody. But what we're finding is actually it's not. It doesn't seem to be clear to everybody. The other problem is that as a subject within the curriculum, it can be perceived as something that's soft or irrelevant, and it's also uncompetitive. And when I use these words, I'm meaning them actually very much in an assessment context, a la Alan Smithers, who seems to be omnipresent in the broadsheet press when we get to August each year, when the A-level results come out and GCSE results come out, and arguments come out about what are the soft qualifications, what are the subjects. Citizenship is kind of sliding into this, this side of being soft, irrelevant. It's the cosy, being happy subject. It's not something that shows competition. It's not something that shows necessarily useful skills for our young people to be learning in schools. And this is because, well, I think it's because, <coughs> we have this problematic notion of what it means. Um, 
It means very different things to different people, as I just said. And this continuum I've put up is part of my own argument and way of trying to make some sense of people's different meanings of citizenship. And you can start at one end and work your way up, and it, it's continuous. It doesn't have an end here. It has a beginning but no particular end, as far as I'm concerned. So you might say that a minimal citizen is literally someone whose perception is that they, have a, a, um, they belong to a particular nation, they represent that nation, they can vote. But other people would actually argue that that's a very passive or thin or elitist notion of what it means to be a citizen. Whereas if you become a deeper citizen, it denotes activity, it denotes a thick notion a maximal ideal of what it means to actually be involved and be a citizen and participate in citizenship. I'm showing you this because this does relate quite strongly to the way that children talked about assessment when I interviewed them. They talk about it as being minimal, as being important, as being thin, or deep, etc. They use other words, but they have a notion, they have a continuum about the way that they look at assessment. So this is why I wanted to, to just bring that up so that it's in your minds. Now, when I conducted most of the research during 2006, 2007, assessment looked quite different for citizenship to what it does now. Um, just literally, I think, as I, I published my thesis, the announcements came out to say that major changes were happening at the end of Key Stage 4. And I remember thinking, God, there goes my book. Um, <laughs> because it was all written up by then. Um, but that's the way of, of studying things that are, are changeable or, or at the um, kind of forefront, if you like, of new additions to the curriculum. But... The, one of the problems that I identified at the time was obviously at the end of Key Stage 3, um, assessment was required. Most schools, apart from ones like the one I t uh, showed you the example of at the beginning, prepare formal reports for parents. Um, <clears throat> and then what teachers would do is make a judgment about whether students were working towards, at or beyond a Key Stage descriptor. But unlike all the other subjects in the national curriculum, there were no layers or no levels in those descriptors. There was only one descriptor and they had to make a judgment of working towards at or beyond. And this is what I considered to be the sting in the tail at the time because the more people I talked to, the more people I found who didn't understand what this meant and were cross that this subject had been introduced into schools as a part of the curriculum, as something that was compulsory and considered to be extremely important. And yet, on the assessment side, it was as if someone had kind of just shut the door on that and gone, we don't really want to think about a model for that. And actually, if you go right back to Bernard Crick's report from 98, there's, I think, this great big kind of thick, you know, the usual kind of reports that come out. And there's maybe, I think, I think there's two paragraphs on assessment in the entire report. Such was their interest in that idea at the time. And I think it's very telling that actually they were, they were just almost ignoring what was going to happen. As I said, all the other subjects have levels of achievement, but not citizenship. Now, of course, this has changed. 
there are still the end of key stage assessments. But what we have are eight level attainment targets. So schools now can actually make decisions, teachers can actually give students a level in line with other levels that they'll receive for other subjects. Now, of course, I haven't been able to do research recently to see the kind of difference that this is making. This is something I'm hoping to do in the future, to see if there is a difference in the way that children respond to that. But they're very complex levels. I was just looking at them again today and looking at um, the kind of skills that teachers are supposed to assess and make judgments about. So they're looking at how can children research complex issues. Children have got to be showing evidence of a validity of a wide range of viewpoints and of evidence, drawing conclusions, okay? taking leading roles in defining, negotiating and undertaking courses of action. Um, and debating challenging questions that relate to them, questions about global and local issues. So these are the, these are the sides of assessment that, that teachers are having to deal with, um, particularly with citizenship. So if we start to think about the actual values of making these kind of measurements, this is where I said showing you that continuum before. The way that um, we perceive assessment actually reflects the citizenship continuum quite well itself. The assessments that are used by teachers in citizenship range very much from the very minimal to what I would call the very thin and bare type of assessments up to much richer, deeper notions of assessment. And again, it depends on those skills that teachers are having to assess in citizenship. Um, but I would argue that this subject is so important, and I certainly do argue it in, in quite a lot of my writing, that all modes of assessment in citizenship have to be utterly applicable to the um, aims and outcomes of it. Because I go with Gordon Stobart on his premise that assessment is a socially embedded concept, and this is where it really comes to its, its fore when we look at it in the context of citizenship. And finally, and very importantly, I think the point to, that I want to make here is that this relationship that our learners have with their assessments is what really underpins the value of what they're doing. Now, <clears throat> it doesn't matter whether you're taking your driving test or whether you're having your doctoral viva or whether you're having your, doing a, a GCSE in mathematics. It's actually the relationship that you're having with that assessment that makes it valuable, that makes it important. So again, it's very much a contextual issue. And this is where I think with citizenship, it's so slippery. So many people in the last five years have said, you're just trying to measure something that's not measurable, okay? You're assessing the unassessable. Um, <clears throat> Now, obviously, those are very, two very different things. Measurement is, quite, is, is a part of assessment, but it isn't assessment per se, OK? Um, it's, it's one way of looking at it. And I think there are aspects of citizenship that we can measure, and I'm going to talk, to those, talk about those um, shortly. Um, but it's the actual grading of the individual that's the problem, which is why I raised it straight away with you. 
And I think the big problem with citizenship is when we come to analysing things such as values and judgments that students make, the analysis and appraisal they make of their work, of their um, actual practical, active roles as citizens. These are the very problematical bits for us as assessors or as people who are interested in assessment. Um, at the moment, many of the recommended modes of assessment do very much emphasise the formative, discursive, assessment for learning um, and so on, those, those kind of practices. Again, there is obviously there's a kind of, there's a really excellent sort of manual on teaching and assessing citizenship by David Kerr. Um, and he says that you have to um, use both summative and formative. But I would argue that the emphasis always comes back to the formative because it's this measuring that I'm not sure is definitely appropriate for citizenship. So coming back to my um, study now, what, some of the early questions that I started to look at after doing some reading and doing some pilot work talking to children in schools was what do pupils really think about studying a subject that doesn't always have a recognisable result? Is this flexible nature of citizenship assessments going to actually devalue the subject? And obviously, how useful are qualifications? The qualifications were out there almost immediately. It was being taught, and obviously those qualifications are developing. We've seen the short course GCSEs become full courses. We're seeing AS, um, citizenship part of social studies, developing into um, <clears throat> potentially a full A-level, etc., and seeing launches of these. So these are some of the, the things I wanted to discuss. So this is the, um, the study I undertook for my, um, for my doctoral work. I did a questionnaire survey to, um, as you can see, 400 teachers in 400 different secondary schools. And then I did a sub-selection of 45 schools and also sent questionnaires to pupils. Now, OK, we can't say this is representative of the whole population. Um, my original plan was, was much more um, advanced than this, much more, um, I would say, I think my supervisor at the time said, what do you think you're doing? And I'd forgotten, of course, that I wasn't working at AQA anymore and I didn't have this massive support to help me type up exam um, answers to questionnaires and do the analysis and things. So we scaled it down to an appropriate level. But I considered, you know, a third response rate not too bad at all. And the point of doing the survey was about actually um, getting together information to help me before I went out and actually start doing the interviews. So it was mainly um, scales of questions, asking people how they felt about being tested, whether they thought the subject was important or not, whether they would be interested in a qualification or not. Um, and whilst I'm not reporting specifically on the questionnaire data here, I did find that when I did some further um, regression analysis and compared um, responses between genders, we found quite significant outcomes about the way that boys responded um, to particularly to GCSE examinations, their preference for wanting to have an examination became quite clear through those kind of analyses. 
and also um, the rate of interest that students showed for different types of assessments began to kind of dissipate over time, which actually surprised me slightly. The 13-year-old respondents were much more excited about taking a range of assessments than the 16-year-olds. The 16-year-olds by then seemed to be very focused on it's either GCSE or nothing. Anyway, we will... Um, Focus today mainly on the interviews. Um, so I went and did paired interview work with students and I did one-to-one -one interviews with 19 teachers over the space of about a year it took me to do all this. Um, <clears throat> so I've put this into several themes where we look at the, the attitudes that my respondents had towards citizenship because, um, again, this is what's actually driving their responses to the way that they're perceiving and looking at assessment. Um, we'll also talk a bit about modes of assessment, what they understood by it, and then their perceptions. I'm going to use direct quotations here from students and teachers. You've got them on your handouts too. So this is a year nine pupil who is showing quite a sophisticated um, understanding of citizenship. It's about learning how to be, to take up roles in the community, to help other people. You can show you're prepared to take a responsible role. So they've got quite a sense of, of what it is they're doing. It's okay, but lots of people see it as a DOS lesson. Now, I ask these students the same question. It's interesting that the first student is talking about a notion of citizenship and the second student's talking about a subject they're learning about. So I say, why do you think that is? I don't know. It's in your form, and they mean by that your tutor time at the beginning of the day, registration, etc. It's civilised, it's chill, but not a lot of work goes on. Now, we might expect that, OK? If you take that note I made earlier about the soft subject, about the idea that it's not quite a real subject, these answers are not wholly unexpected. And crucially, it's not important as maths or English. Okay, so the focus, you have a year 10 pupil here, the focus is on those core subjects. So <clears throat> they're making quite clear value judgments at this point. It's about what they really think and how they're thinking in particular ways. When those students talked about how the subject was um, delivered, how it was taught to them, what struck me most here is that there's um, what I found really was a, a clear understanding from pupils that teachers aren't always qualified to teach the subject. Um, there is a shortfall in trained citizenship teachers, of course there is. It was the one thing that didn't quite happen in time with the introduction of the curriculum subject. And um, I phoned up a, a friend the other day who's involved in the training of teachers and he said the current figure stands at about 1,500 people trained as specialists at the moment in citizenship. So it's still not very many if you consider it's been in the system for eight years now as part of the national curriculum. We actually only have 1,500 specifically trained citizenship experts. Um, students were well aware when <laughs> things were being done on the hoof. Particularly, I don't understand why we get qualified teachers in every subject, but not this one. People think it's a joke. 
I can remember this conversation quite clearly and the student said, I don't understand, why is it the other teachers know what they're talking about, they've been trained in it, why not this subject? I don't think they know how to teach it. I don't think they know themselves what it's about. And we had quite long dialogues here about what their understanding was of the subject and what they thought the teachers thought the subject meant. And this is something that was very important to them. So, coming on to the teachers, this is quite an extreme answer, but it's not uncommon. It's politically motivated contrivance, a non-subject. It's dangerous, it's an imposition. Okay, now it's quite an extreme view. But that's the extreme of the kind of discontent with many of the teachers I spoke to. Because things that affected their teaching practice are really significant. And they continue to be significant, these, isu these issues. When you look at the current Ofsted report from, that just came out in January, etc. Um, the allowance of time in lessons is very short. Most of the teachers I spoke to have obviously put the values in here of the number of people who gave me answers. An hour a week, one hour a fortnight in four of the schools I spoke to. Um, quality of teaching was a great concern to many of the teachers I spoke to. Some of them said that the biggest problem they felt was in cross-curricular delivery, that they couldn't ensure the quality of what was being taught to the pupils because it might be that a French expert was teaching it to someone else. And it's not to say that that person wasn't a good teacher, it's just to say that what their argument was, was that they weren't sure about quality and the level of teaching and people's confidence to teach. Um, <clears throat> also is this idea about um, who is teaching it to. So non-specialists, as they say, could negatively affect the way the subject was perceived, could talk about it in a negative way, could talk it down to students. And I found that in quite a few of the schools that I spoke to, um, not just from teachers but also from pupils where people's responses to me had been that, you know, it's, it was treated as a bit of a joke. Now, once I started, had got through talking about the subject itself, how it was taught, etc., then I started to talk to them about assessment. I started to talk to students about assessment and, in particular, always asked them not just how they were assessed, because what I always did in schools was compared what the teacher said the assessment structure was with what the pupils thought the assessment structure was. And it was interesting how often those two were at complete odds with one another. But also asking pupils, well, OK, if you're discontent with the model for, of assessment for citizenship, what would you put in its place? Now, these two, this is one of my favourite conversations because these two had plenty of ideas, this boy and girl, year 11 pupils. The boy was saying it should be an oral exam, and what he's saying here is very interesting. He says it will actually show what people understand. It's not writing down facts and people just trying to pass. And he kept arguing that, oh, people do stuff because they need the grades, they need the right level. But actually, in this subject, we've got to do something different. And he, he says, though, you know, I don't know, it's going to be quite hard to mark. Um, the girl says something which I just heard continually from students. Um, she says, obviously, they wouldn't enjoy it as much if you had to learn lots of facts. So if it's like 
a lot of the other subjects that they were talking to me about. They seemed to perceive that their assessments were just simply regurgitation of facts. What she's saying here, in the end, it's your opinion that counts and not what you know. And a lot of them argued that you can't make a judgment about opinions. They kept coming back to this idea about citizenships, about your opinion. It's not about knowledge. And um, that was a very common comment. And this other conversation, <clears throat> then, that's with year 10 pupils, um, where we talked about why assessment was important to them. And as they say, it's important that you have one. It helps you. It tells you how you're doing, and then you can take it seriously. So again, it's the thing about how valuable is it? How serious am I going to be about this subject if it does or doesn't have an assessment? So if you're going to get good marks, it encourages you. Yes, of course. But if you're not assessed, then there's no drive to the lesson. You're not going to achieve anything from it. So it's, it's very clear. And I mean, carrying on from there, I had many more conversations about the use of a GCSE. Um, this is detailed more in the papers that I think Liz circulated. And if you, if you don't have them, please just ask me and I'll email them to you um, at the end. But obviously I can't fit it all in today. But the, the GCSE was a real moot point with many students who either were straight down the line, we want to study it, but at the time there was only the short course available and they were very frustrated. They didn't want to do a short course. They wanted a full course in it because they didn't feel that short courses were actually worth anything. Interestingly enough, I said, do you think short courses in, in any of your subjects are worth um, the same? You know, if you put two together, would it be the same? And they said, no, no, we don't like short courses. They don't seem worth it as an assessment, which I thought was just a general interesting response. Um, so <clears throat> this idea that it would have a GCSE attached to it in particular was, was very important to them. But then other students were still very much against it, like the ones at the top. They really weren't sure whether that would be the right way to go for this subject. So it's some um, particular problem for them. Again, a, just a final comment on assessment here. As the student said to me, I don't think it would be respected as something really important. Um, this is if, it's, if it um, had a qualification attached to it. And I say such as, well, um, if you had it, people would be like, well, yeah, that's good. But if you were clever, it wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't be like you'd worked for it because it's all your own opinion. So this is their perception that even if I got a qualification, it's not really going to be worth it. It's not going to be worth the same. And I asked them, OK, if you get this qualification, then where, where do you think it would be useful? How would you use it? Where would you, you know, would you put it pride of place on your application form for particular jobs? And these are the jobs that they listed. Those are the only jobs I had listed every time. Only five out of the 58 children I interviewed. The most common one was a policeman, social workers, <coughs> teachers, lawyers, carers. That's what they thought citizenship's for. That's where you would use that GCSE qualification. OK, so moving on to the teachers and what they thought. Overall, I found that teachers, obviously, they're professionals committed to actually assessing, but particularly constrained at the time by the structure of the assessment for citizenship. And also, um, covertly very concerned. They, I, you know, can't count the number of times, lost count, rather, of the number of times that teachers said to me, well, 
is this really in confidence? And I was like, well, yes, I'm never going to give anyone your name or tell them where your school is. And they would kind of go, well, it's an absolute nightmare. And they, are, they were very concerned about their teaching consistently being led by other assessments, which they considered to be of, um, of value. Okay, and citizenship didn't fall into that mould. And the constraints were also uh, very dominant in particular schools. For example, one boys' grammar school where I did um, interviews, the head was, was quite honest with me. He said, we do a very small amount of teaching this. It doesn't fit in with our curriculum. Parents don't want it. There will be no assessments of this. There will never be any qualifications offered. It doesn't fit the profile of this school. Okay, now, of course, that's only one example, but there may well be many other examples like that. The things that teachers said to me were the kind of battles they had daily with other members of staff. So this teacher who argued that other staff were very condescending, um, they don't respect citizenship as a subject because we don't have any formal accreditation for it in our school. We haven't chosen that route. Um, and then... Examples like this one, we were looking to assess it via GCSE. That way we could actually engage the pupils. They're actually thinking about using it as a lever for engagement. Because at the moment there's no external validation. Some of the further comments um, about value relate to what I was just saying. Um, the idea that assessing the subject is really, really difficult. A nightmare, in fact, for Teacher D. The balance between skills and knowledge and understanding is very unclear to them. And they, they found that with all of the materials that were available to them relating to assessment. They said they just couldn't make, make it clear to themselves. They couldn't understand um, how to do it. And this continual argument, if it was knowledge-based, it would be very different. It's a difficult subject to assess. And many teachers said this to me, that the students who have actually the lowest amounts of knowledge that they considered to be the least able students in their classes were the ones who did really well in citizenship. But they didn't know how to harness that um, quality of response from their students. They, they weren't sure what to do with it in terms of citizenship. And this is all underpinned by what I found particularly interesting is I just didn't find any common practice across all the... 19 different schools I went to. I couldn't find common patterns that I could match up with every single school. And I was expecting there would be some kind of commonality, but there wasn't. It was a very, very mixed and, and matched batch of, um, of responses and approaches to assessment. And as I've already shown by some of the um, comments that I got from teachers is... This attitude affects delivery and consequently that knocks on to how teachers actually assess. Okay, so the idea of, of um, are we going to use a level, what kind of assessment are we going to use is really, really important and actually um, trying to get teachers to think about their actual particular attitude, the way they approach this kind of assessment is really, really important. And their continual question to me was, well, what constitutes successful assessment of citizenship? Um, how are we going to do it well? 
And this actually got me thinking then about what are the particular attributes which successful teachers have. Um, <clears throat> now, I decided to do a little bit more research into this, and I've got a handout. I, I decided to do um, a little bit more research into how teachers could more successfully assess and were there particular things that particular teachers had that made them good assessors? Um, I used a methodology called ideal type methodology, which is outlined in one of my papers, where you um, actually create specific frameworks of, for individuals and you create them as very exaggerated um, descriptions of reality. But what you do is include data that you've already collected. So what I did was I looked through all the interviews I'd done and I created these three types of citizenship teacher and I tried to model how I thought it would be that they would assess. Now that table I've given you is, is my table of types. Um, and I came up with these three types. I came up with the person who I called the inheritor, which is fairly obvious. It's the person who's inherited the subject. They're not necessarily an expert in citizenship. They've taken it on. They're going to have a go at it, but they're coming at it from a very particular stance. Um, I also created someone who was a specialist, who actually had specific training in citizenship, and would, their assessment perspective would take on a different uh, reality. And then what I called an innovator, because I found a pocket of small number of teachers who were neither of the above, and were kind of like real gung-ho um, attitude about really getting on and having a go at grappling with this subject. But the way that they approached assessment was um, quite individual. Um, so I'm going to, obviously, you've got those two handouts to have a look at. The use of actually creating these types was to try and actually create some kind of benchmark to help me understand the way teachers were, were using assessment and actually... Um, working their practice in teaching citizenship. So what I did when I create that framework of types was I sent it back to everyone who I'd interviewed and I said, what do you think of this? And where do you think you fall? Which one are you? Um, what kind of um, assessor are you? What kind of citizenship teacher are you? And it was really interesting to get back their responses too. Because, of course, what I did before I sent them all back was I created a little table... And I predicted who would fall into what type. And then when they sent me back their responses, it was quite interesting to see how they perceived themselves. And many of the people that I considered to be really innovative or specialist teachers believed themselves to be inheritors. Or a couple of people who I saw as inheritors who seemed to have very tightly framed ideas of how to assess, how to teach, considered themselves to be innovators, etc. So... It was quite interesting just to see how, um, how teachers were actually perceived their own practice and how they were going to work with assessments. So in relation to what we were talking about today, it's the bottom section of this table on the assessment that I was interested in. Um, and what I wanted to see was who was going to be likely to experiment with different assessment techniques. And, as I said, they found that they identified with particular elements of these ideas and they aspired to identify with others. A lot of their feedback told me that they, it had, actually reading through these typologies, had really made them think about what they were assessing and how they were doing it.
several of them said that the reflection on practice in looking at typologies had helped them to develop new ideas about assessing citizenship. So I, one of the things that I concluded, because many of the teachers said that they saw themselves as a particular type of assessor, um, and yet they'd look around their department, if they were perhaps the citizenship coordinator, and had felt that some of their colleagues were completely opposing types to them. They'd actually been thinking about, well, actually, how will our delivery be affected if we've got opposing ideas about how our work and how our practice is going to develop with citizenship? And one of my respondents actually went off and she started developing her own ideal types within her school. She said such was the influence, which is very nice to hear. She got very excited about this idea about actually creating these kind of models to look at practice just within the framework of their, their school. So overall, I found this um, an extremely helpful... It was the, the final exercise, actually, for me, which tied a lot of the research together because it helped me to give it a much greater understanding of how the teachers were working and what they were thinking about their practice. So obviously you've, you've got those to, to look at because they're very text heavy. You can't obviously read it all now. But I want to just finish up by coming up to date now with the Ofsted report from January, um, which is called Citizenship Established. All the Ofsted reports seem to have question marks at the end of their titles. The last one was something like Citizenship Transformed, question mark. So um, they were looking at case studies of 10 schools that they'd visited. And I found it fascinating to read straight away that there were four of those 10 still do no assessment of citizenship at all. Okay, so we are, as assessors, and those who are interested in assessment, we're up against it. They're holding out. Okay, and I picked out these particular sections because I felt they were very interesting in the appraisal of assessment was that few of the schools had a notion of what was entailed by the different levels, those eight levels that have come in. It's still problematic. They're still struggling to understand it. And not just the teachers, the students as well. And we, most of us know how good students are. They're brilliant at assessment now, young people in schools. They really understand their levels. They understand how to read their levels. They understand what they mean to them. Um, but the hopeful thing for, for those of you involved in the development of qualifications, certainly, was that schools with experience of more accredited courses, and they weren't just talking about GCSEs, A-levels here as well. I think they were also referring to things like ASDAN, SEAL curriculum, etc. But um, were positively, were further forward in their thinking about assessment than other schools visited. And you could say, well, yes, obviously. And in one sense, yes, because they are thinking about how to accredit this too. It is important to them. So just to sum up, really, with my own conclusions for this, the one significant conclusion that I came to overall is that... Um, I think it's, I hope it's come across to you how passionately I feel about the idea of students studying citizenship right the way through school. But I think it is assessment that's absolutely key to the success of it. And um, this is also noted in the changes, you know, the changes to the curriculum that happened from September 2009 that have continued to happen since then in relation to assessment. They have acknowledged that when citizenship first came in, the assessment structure was not right. The problem I think we face is obviously that policy is not enough. 
um, if we look at all the literature for assessment for learning, um, all the writing that's, that's been done in recent years about different approaches to learning in schools and in the classroom, um, it's not just simply giving people tools to do it. It's got to be a pedagogical shift in attitudes. That's what's going to actually shift the way that pupils perceive the subject and perceive the assessments. Because I think what's happening, particularly in schools now, is that teachers more and more are inculcated and are having to fit within a very tight regime. And it's all very well for us to say, you should be using this AFL practice, you should be using this. But actually, when you're in there doing it day to day, it's a very different matter. So requiring people to shift those attitudes and make changes is a significant problem and it's it is something it's not insurmountable but it actually has to be faced and it has to be moved and so finally i kind of i found this i thought when you finished your doctorate you tied it up and you answered all the questions but of course i've realized what happens is you continue to open up more doors open up more questions to for yourself and I continually wonder at this question of why is citizenship valuable? Why is the assessment of it valuable? And I've got some answers. I think it is intrinsically valuable. I think it can offer people um, enhanced ways of assessing in the classroom. I haven't even had time to touch upon the discussions I had where we talked about self and peer assessment, how brilliant children were at doing that in relation to citizenship, how effective that kind of practice was in classrooms. Um, it has to be of value because the two are linked. The assessment, the curriculum are linked. There's no, no dissecting those. And the, the value of subjects is inherently linked now to the type of assessment, the way they're assessed. So I think the construct of it is vital. Um, and yes, you, of course, you can test for good citizenship. There are all sorts of ways you can test. But... It's, it's keeping apart that notion that I started with, that whether you're testing the individual or whether you're testing notions of citizenship, and they're two very different things and very problematic things. And is there such a thing as a grade A citizen? That's the one I'm still not sure about. And I have to say, this is where I come with my furry academic, you know, philosophical hat on I'm not sure whether there is I'm continually having arguments with real philosophers about there is no such thing and some who think yes you can say that that person is a bad or a good citizen or a grade A or a grade E and as I've put here it is to be continued because I want to um, obviously continue that research myself and I'm just going to finish promise with <laughs> the very final Bit. I have to quote Gordon Stobart here, who um, many people know, just because I think his writing is so indicative of and important in the context of assessment now that he argues that it is a powerful activity. It shapes how societies, groups and individuals see themselves. Thus, we've got to be mindful of how its power can be harnessed effectively. And then this is me in order to change current perspectives of assessment in citizenship education. This pedagogical shift is required. 
And I believe that if teachers can enable pupils to gain a richer understanding of their learning through formative and summative techniques, it'll be possible for pupils to extend their learning and be able to see how achievements are applicable in a range of contexts that are beyond school and beyond the workplace and out there in wider society. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.